Hello, and do come in and make yourself comfortable. This is Out to Lunch, the podcast where I chat to fascinating people over a few courses of fantastic food. Today's guest was a reluctant pop star in the 80s before swapping his keyboard for the hymn sheet and becoming the vicar of Finden. Not one to spurn the limelight entirely, he has continued regular TV and radio appearances. He's the host of BBC Radio 4 Saturday Live and has also just published a best-selling memoir, The Madness of Grief. Before we proceed, I have what my guest would probably call a few parish notices. Um, this podcast contains some discussion about alcoholism and losing a loved one, which may not be suitable for all listeners. Our chat over lunch was recorded mid-lockdown three whilst there was still snow on the ground. We dined thanks to a delivery from the wonderful Game Bird at the Stafford Hotel, and that cheered our spirits no end. And my guest? Well, it is, of course, the enormously talented Reverend Richard Coles. When it was announced that I was going to be on Strictly, it happened to coincide with my free colonoscopy at Kettering General Hospital. And anyway, the procedure began, and one of the nurses said, do you want to watch this? And I thought, well, I might as well. They pulled back this curtain, and as they did, they went... Hello. Hello. I'm delighted we've managed to make this work. So am I. I hope it hasn't been that complicated. Piece of piss, Jay. And more to the point, we've sent you a delivery box which has required you to cook your main course. My main course, let's leave what it is until we get there, like a reveal. Yeah. It's out of the oven now and sort of resting. I don't know if you've done the same. Right, it will will be perfectly fine. Before I talk about the food, I just want to say, I spent a lovely few days occasionally looking at Communard's videos. Oh, yeah. From your pop career in the 80s, which is right in the heart of sort of my wheelhouse, because I was born 66, so I was 20 when, when that album came out. And the thing that really struck me looking at it, and I hope you take this the right way, people often say, isn't it incongruous that a pop star went on to become a vicar? And I concluded they were playing the tape in the wrong direction, that actually what's incongruous is that a vicar was ever a pop star. I mean, you're there, and I'm sure you're having a lovely time. You're you're absolutely right. I was thinking of my my nephew, Oliver, who is um, just 18. He used to go, all right, Uncle Richard, like you were in a band. And I went, yeah. And he said, did you make videos? And I went, yeah. So I showed him a video, and he looked at it kind of approvingly. And at the end he said, you know... Even then, you can tell there was a vicar struggling to get out. <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's kind of true. Um, don't leave me this way. You've got Sarah Jane Morris and Jimmy Somerville dancing their asses off on stage. You're in a nice suit and tie on a piano in the corner. <laughs> yeah. I can remember when I was in Bronsky Beat, which was before Communards, doing the Montreux Pop Festival and overhearing in a sort of offline edit or whatever the equivalent was then, the bloke from the record company saying to the editor, oh, don't worry about him. No, just to the other, just to the singer guy. (laughs) (laughs) But you enjoyed it. You clearly enjoyed that period of being in that world. I enjoyed some of it. I loved being in the studio. I loved the sound check. I loved MDing, actually. That was really good fun. I really enjoyed doing that. And we had, like, a string section and horns and all that, so that was really good fun. And I loved the success, the vindication, and the and also the rewards. But I was kind of not very comfortable in that world, as you could possibly tell, because I've always yeah. been much more interested in Wagner, really, than the hit parade, and I think it shows. Oh, you and your anti-Semites. Um, the- <laughs> <laughs> well, gosh, unfortunately, there's, as you know, the history of classical music is not light on anti-Semites. 
Seems a great way to go into our starter, <laughs> by the way. So the Stafford Hotel has a restaurant called The Game Bird, which I like very much. But in common, in the midst of lockdown, as we are now, they're doing a delivery box. So I've got one sent to you. And our starter is smoked salmon crumble shoe bun with pickled cucumber. I also got one of these, Jay. What, a bottle of pink champagne? Yeah. I'm tempted to open it. Is that okay? Absolutely. But because I want to be an utter professional, you can get as sloshed as you like. I'm meant to interview you in... Uh, Excellent. In detail. So it's a little shoe bun, which is one of those things that normally people associate with profiteroles, but it's a savoury one with a sort of darkened crumble on the top and you filled it with their smoked salmon creme fraiche mix. Oh, the cork's coming out. Oh, listen to that. Very nice. Pink champagne. This is one of my father's things, pink champagne. He was of the generation where pink champagne was absolutely the height of luxury. Well, God, it's hardly the depths of slumming it now. (laughs) For um, people who don't know where you are, explain exactly. Oh, is that about to go over the top of the glass? No, you saved it. Ever the pro. Um, You've done this before. Well, yeah, but I'm not using a champagne tulip because I can't be asked. I prefer just an ordinary wine glass. Um, I'm in the, my vicarage in Findon in Northamptonshire. It's a, a village uh, sort of in between Northampton and Peterborough. Um, and it's particularly lovely today because we have a very warm gingerbread stone here. And in the snow, that gingerbread stone kind of glows with an almost unearthly light, Jay. You like that? What's interesting to me about your story is a gay man growing up in Kettering, yeah, which was, you know, not necessarily the most... <laughs> I want to be careful because of all those people in Kettering who might be listening, and I don't want to sound abusive. But, um, you know, not necessarily the most cosmopolitan of areas. Mm. Coming to terms with your sexuality, mm. a bit of a cry for help thrown in. Yeah. You run off to London, but then you come back again. Mm. Because how far from Kettering is Findon for those of us who are just <clears throat> restless cosmopolitans? It's seven miles from Kettering. But actually, I grew up in... T- two villages along, a little village called Barton Seagrave, which is in between here and Kettering. So I'm actually four miles from where I grew up. And the next village, Burton Latimer, is actually where my family's from. My family have been around these parts since at least the 17th century. And, and in coming to that parish, yeah. was, that, was that a choice or did somebody say, you know what, that Richard Coles, he's from around here and community is <laughs> important and maybe he'd like it. Hmm. Sorry, this is really good, by the way. I was in central London, uh, Knightsbridge, Cura. I think lots of people would have thought that I would have stayed in central London, me being very much at home in that world, and also it being handy for the BBC and other things I do. And uh, I was going to take a parish not very far from Knightsbridge, but then I saw an advert for this parish, and I kind of just had one of those little moments, a little bat squeak of realisation that there might be something interesting here. So I hired me to Findon, and uh, the bishop offered me the job. And I said yes, and that was, well, it'd be 10 years ago on Palm Sunday. So it was almost made for you. <laughs> well, and also, after I'd been here, uh, only just a couple of weeks, our parish archivist, Mr Bailey, no longer with us, said um, he'd found something in the archive, showed that two of, uh, two of my ancestors were vicars here, father and son, from 16, I think 1612 to 1645. So very deeply rooted here. At the point when you moved 10 years ago, were you and your late partner, David, already together? we were. We had just got civilly partnered, which was the best thing available at the time. A rather unromantic process, Joe, I have to say. 
Dis register office, no disrespect to dis register office, but we sort of went in and signed a form. It was like getting a dog license at the post office. And then um, we emerged and we went to London and we went to the Ivy and had dinner. Well, that's a very lovely way to do that. I deposited my parents' ashes under a bank, a banquet at the Ivy. What a lovely place to, to <laughs> kind of sit quietly. Which brings us. Rather neatly, I'm gonna, I'm, there's lots of other stuff I want to talk about, but you've yes. got a book coming out, and it deals with something very difficult, which is the fact that David Upton mm. died on you just before Christmas 2019. Yeah. It's an extraordinary book because you've written it in an unflinching style. I'm imagining, knowing what I do of publishing schedules, you wrote it at some yeah. speed. What happened, Jay, was David died, and then I, as is my habit, kind of just wrote on social media about what was, you know, happening because I just, well, I think I was in shock really, and then I thought I need to come off social media for a bit, so I did. But somebody from a newspaper asked me if I'd write an article, so I did. So in the sort of thick of that first shock, I wrote a piece, and then they said, "Oh, we'll have some more of that piece." So I do what I do, which is sort of write in the middle of the experience, really. So I did. And I thought, it's such a weird and sort of fascinating thing, bereavement. And it's something, well, you know you've, you know yourself from the loss of your parents, but it's, you know, one of those few human experiences that we will pretty much all share. And yet we don't really face it or talk about it or deal with it. And if you are bereaved, you sort of slightly feel like you're the ancient mariner wandering around and People feel that there's something maybe contagious about it and they feel embarrassed or awkward. Not everyone. But I thought it was something that I wanted to uh, write about and think about. Was it therapeutic to do so? I felt like I was a war correspondent, actually, and I'd be kind of dropped down in a street corner in somewhere violent and I was just reporting what was happening. But, of course, what was happening was happening to me. But for me, it was a, a mixture of... I think there was a sort of feeling of detachment about it because you necessarily detach from it because if you were just fully uh, alive to it, you wouldn't function at all. And you had to do things like register the death and you know, get death certificates and then cancel bank cards and go to the shops and clean, your, clean the house well and eventually go to work. And so there's a sort of necessary detachment which gets you through. And then as the kind of days become weeks, become months, become a year, you realise that actually you've been completely mad for the whole stretch and that you're just at the beginning, you're in the foothills of it. It's a long thing. You're 13 or 14 months yeah, on, it was, if I've got uh, my December, maths right. the 17th. 2019, David died. Are you still mad? Yeah, I am. I mean, I was very mad to begin with, to be honest, Jay, but... Uh, mm. <laughs> I suppose knowing that you're mad means that you're a bit less mad than you were. An awareness of that is, I think, a, a symptom of sanity lurking I somewhere. think so. And also, I did compare notes with other people who'd been through it. And uh, I realised that I was pretty much where they were when it happened to them. So I was able to sort of benchmark my madness and think, oh, well, this is probably about right. Uh, where are you with your starter, by the way, before I... I'm just about to finish we... it, Jay. It's very good. Did you enjoy it? I did. I mean, it's it's it, what's really interesting with these delivery boxes is kitchens thinking carefully about how do we create something that they can make into something really, really good at home. Yeah. So there was a lovely cucumber, pickled cucumber salad. Delicious. A really nice... I love the crumb smoked. as well. Yeah. I was worried that the crumb would not survive transit, but it did. Should we take our, I think, five-minute break to go and plate up our main course? Let's do it. 
That was the easiest way to cook a guinea fowl I've ever known. Literally just stuck it in the oven for 45 minutes. It came out perfect. Well, that is, I think it should be said, because the game bird had done a certain amount of heavy lifting. So I'll say, explain what we've got. A pot roast guinea fowl with roast veg, uh, new potatoes and a stunning truffle sauce. Did you get the sauce on? I did. It's absolutely delicious. Isn't it? And what they've done is it's a whole guinea fowl that they poached first so that we're just roasting it onwards. Some people, when they cook a roast chicken, like to kind of do it that way, don't they? I could never be asked. This book of yours, there's a sort of saying or understanding in journalism that if you're going to interview someone, be very careful that you read as much of the book as you possibly can. Good Um, advice. Good advice. And that means that, you know, I, I, I really read my way through it and I got to the point on page 77 which has a bit of a revelation on it. Yeah. Um, so David dies in December. Yes. And I'm, we're friends on Facebook. Um, so I saw that announcement to a, a mere 5,000 you know, friends that you have. Yeah. Until that point, a couple of nights ago when I read that page, it was merely an underlying condition. I mean, it was an underlying condition, but the underlying condition was alcoholism. So David died as a result of his drinking, and uh, he had a a completely out-of-control drinking habit. Although, actually, towards the end of his life, it got a little bit more under control, but the damage by then was done. But it meant that the sort of um, David's death was a long time coming, and it was a pretty gruelling process, as anyone who's ever seen alcoholic close up will know. And it's something I didn't particularly want to share with anybody. You know, alcoholic is such a sort of blunt instrument, isn't it? It is. And I understand why it's very useful for people to self-designate themselves as alcoholics in order to recover from it. But I didn't want David's memory to be funneled into uh, a receptacle marked alcoholic. I felt there was much more to him than that. Of course there was, as there is to everyone. I just didn't want to have the conversation. And then when this book was coming, I realised I couldn't write the book without being uh, talking about that. And also, it would only take a journalist, you know, it would be no work to look up David's death certificate and there it is, his cause of death is on his death certificate. So I spoke to his mother and father and his um, family and said, are you okay if I talk about it? And they said they were. And also, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm playing the charity card, but uh, it's an experience that's very common. I was involved with Al-Anon when David was at his worst because it's an incredibly heavy burden to bear on your own. I couldn't, in fact. And what's Al-Anon? Al-Anon is a sort of sister organisation to Alcoholics Anonymous, but instead of being for alcoholics, it's for those who have alcoholics in their lives. It's a similar sort of thing. In fact, the process is is very similar. And parts of that work and parts of it don't for me. But what I did really get a lot out of was the solidarity of other people. I mean, that's what's clear from the, the passage in the book, that from the reader's point of view, you went through hell. It was really bad when, when it was at its worst. I mean, partly also... It was, it's just really bad if you're dealing with anyone who's got an addiction. Um, anyone who's lived, loved someone who's got an addiction will know what that's like. But when you're also a sort of vicar and a public figure, um, there's a sort of added dimension of anxiety about it because it just made upholding what we had to uphold that much more difficult in a way. And in a way, there was an unexpected benefit to that because I think... If I had thought before that priesthood can only be exercised by people who reserve for themselves a sort of mystical power that sails serenely above the vicissitudes of life, which is an absurd idea, but it's a powerful one. Well, that went. And also I realised that in terms of just simply how I could function and how we could manage 
with David when he was particularly bad was through the help of other people. So the parish and friends were wonderful. And that was good for me because it stopped me thinking that I had to be sort of mystically perfect. David was also a priest. He was yeah. also clergy. Did he have a parish or did, did he not? He had a curacy at the neighbouring parish, but unfortunately his drinking was... Uh, unmanageable so he lost his license to officiate so he stepped down from that which was very tough for him but it had to be was there also a time when you were concerned that at some point the media would find out about this and it would become a story as well yeah i mean there are sort of um drunk vicars is sort of irresistible it happened to a friend of mine who I trained with who had a, went through an episode of bad drinking and was sort of caught by the media in embarrassing circumstances. And, of course, they had a field day with it. And that, you know, sells newspapers, but it doesn't really help anybody. But it might encourage someone to... You, you need to have a sort of reminder from reality that uh, addiction warps your view of the world and everything. And then once you have that, then you can start perhaps to engage with it. David was very, like lots of addicts, he would do almost anything to deny the reality of his addiction. So being confronted with the consequences of his drinking would be intolerable to him. He was at his most distressed and sometimes at his most... He could be spectacularly difficult sometimes and and that would be one of the ways in which he would be spectacularly difficult. And yet you, you managed to carry on, you know, you've got your Radio 4 show, Saturday Live, which I like to think of as the support act to my show on Radio 4. Because uh, <laughs> we come the ge- the straight off up. the back. Yeah, the general <laughs> run. Although I think we all know that the first thing that happens is half a million people turn off as, as you finish. Two million people turn off when we start, though. Uh, <laughs> is that true? Is yeah. that the number that comes off the Today programme? It's, yeah, it's, we lose half the Today programme's audience the minute we come on it. So I, I open my mouth and two million yeah. people say no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very nurturing show. It's a very clever show, I think, in that it's it's Thank about you. community and about people talking about the things they've been through. And obviously, as presenters, we are there to elicit and enable co- contributors. Did you ever feel, please don't take this the wrong way, but sort of fraudulent for not admitting what was going on in your life at the time when David was at his worst? No, partly because... We have a job to do, as you know. So I have a sort of, have a sort of worked out view about what my professional obligations are, and it's not unrelated in a way to being a vicar. So, for example, it would be a perhaps a legitimate question for someone to say to me, "How can you presume to offer me anything useful about the chaotic state of my life when the state of your life is even worse?" But my job is not to be perfect. My job is to, through my priesthood, is to offer um, various kind of ways of them engaging with what's happening to them. So I have a job to do, I have things to do. Um, and when you're interviewing someone, my job is not uh, always to kind of uh, over-empathise. I mean, and it's interesting one is grief, Jay. I don't know if you found this when you have been grieving, is that there are things you don't trespass on, right? Other people's grief, for example. I mean, I've never, I'm not, What you don't want the vicar to suddenly burst out um, crying when you're uh, dealing with your own bereavement. You want the vicar to get you safely through this next bit. Right? Uh, no, you don't want to have to comfort the other person exactly. who's distressed by but When your you're grief, interviewing no. someone, my job is to get them through the story, to hit the points and to not crash the pips. So I have uh, a job to do, as indeed you know, you know, as you know very well. Um, so, I, so professionalism necessitates a certain detachment, although it's made me... 
I mean, the big breakthrough for me with David was when I realised that me being angry with him for drinking too much was ridiculous. The last thing he needed was someone to make him feel worse about himself than he already did. So I stopped, and then I could just be very loving, and that made a huge difference. And although he didn't stop drinking, he stopped drinking with such sort of spectacular um, aggro, and that made a big difference. So the last sort of year and a half of his life were better than the preceding year and a half of his life, and that was really good. Reading all of that um, brought to mind... I mean, it's a question I have to, I have to ask, um, and it's referenced by a David Baddiel joke, which I think he's already told you. I think you know which which one this is. It's about the old Jewish guy goes to heaven. He's died. He goes to heaven. He meets God. He tells God a joke about the Holocaust, and God says, "I don't get it." And the man says, "Ah, you had to be there." <laughs> I think it's one of the perfect jokes, but it's that issue about you know where was God at the Holocaust, and on a smaller personal scale. Where the hell was God when you were going through all of this shit? I think it would be a mistake to think of Christianity as offering you a get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to the um, the awfulness of life. On the contrary, it sort of enables you to, I think, face that stuff. And um, Was your faith ever challenged at any time through this? No, I don't think so. I mean, I've, I've never, I've never had. I mean, you know, I, I was an atheist all my life until I wasn't, and since then, I've never had so much as a sort of elevenses of dark elevenses of the soul. It just has never happened to me, and I've never. I mean, I, I've, there was a bit when when David was dying, when I went to the chapel in the hospital, and it's sort of just it was like a check in, and I sort of went, look, okay. Um, I'm afraid I'm not going to be good for much for a while, but you know about that. So um, I'm just checking in and uh, see you when I'm able to on the other side of this. Now, I know that you get a certain amount of stress from people complaining to you for being a media vicar. Yes. Uh, They write you obnoxious letters talking about you poncing around on telly and on Strictly and things like that. Yeah. Just so we're absolutely clear... Your parish in Findon is not the full-time job, is it? No, it's not. I'm a half-time vicar, which means that I theoretically at least spend half my time vicaring because it's a poor parish and it can't afford a full-time vicar. But that kind of worked for me because it left me with um, half the week to do various other things. But then even vicaring, which you think would be the most vocational uh, of occupations, for more and more of us is is a sort of portfolio thing. I have a wonderful curate who's fantastic, but she has a job in secular employment too. And so it's not unusual. But, of course, out there in the world, people just see me, you know, poncing around on game shows and think that's all I do. But, of course, there isn't a camera crew following me around when I'm doing my vicar thing and they don't see that. But what's striking is you do almost all of it in a dog collar. So when you were on Strictly, you had your dog collar. I I find myself wondering whether you see your media work. I mean, let's let's not pretend. We we both know that you love a bit of attention and you, you love the work and you love broadcasting and all of that. I don't know where you get that idea from, James. I have no idea. Does that mean that there have been things that you've been offered that you've had to turn down because they're not becoming for a man of the cloth? I mean, have you been offered, you know, exorcism with Richard Coles yeah. by Channel 5? Has that, has well, that I won't, well, I won't say that, but I've been asked to do things sometimes which would involve me sort of having to fake being a vicar while I'm doing it, which I'd say no to, obviously. Hang on, how can you fake being a vicar as you are a vicar? Well, because I would be required to go through the motions of doing something sacramental, which I would oh, actually I see. do. See what I mean? I yeah, don't yeah. want to do that. It's a tricky one, Jay, but I think of myself more and more in that sense as a sort of mission priest. You know, in the 1880s, there were 
beardy Anglican vicars going up the Zambezi, trying to convert us what they would have thought of as the dark continent. And I think I'm probably doing something a bit like that because, in a way, there's just as much a need for missionaries now, but here, as there has been at any time in the church's life and expansion, I think, because we're unintelligible to most people and actively revolting to quite a lot of them. When when you were offered strictly, did you call the bishop? I mean, yeah. do you call the bishop quite regularly and say, I've been offered this, I've been offered this, what do you think? Yes, I do. Um, I mean, if it's a significant thing, I will ask. I will always ask the bishop's advice and also for the bishop's blessing as well, which has always been forthcoming. Although I don't think he'd ever seen Strictly and he had to speak to the suffragan bishop to find out <laughs> a bit more about it. I mean, the bishops have been extremely supportive. I think they understand that it's useful perhaps to have someone like me who gets you know, access to the mainstream through media to do my thing. And also to sort of um, support me when the going gets tough. I mean, I do make a right balls up of it sometimes, Jay. And Oh, go on. Give me an example. Well, I think my Paso Doble on Strictly Come Dancing is not something that I would want chiselled onto my headstone. Do you think that showed the church in a bad light? No, I think it showed me in a bad light. <laughs> right, OK. Do I tell you what happened on the first day when it was announced that I was going to be on Strictly? Go on. It happened to coincide with my free colonoscopy at Kettering General Hospital. <laughs> so I turned up at the hospital and uh, got into a gown and everything, and then I was um, shown through into the place where it happened, and there was the doctor, who was a friend of mine, actually, and there were uh, the two nurses there. And anyway, the procedure began, and one of the nurses said, do you want to watch this? And I thought, well, I might as well. And so they turned around this monitor so I could watch it. They pulled back this curtain, and as they did, they went, That's fabulous. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Channel 4 has been playing a brilliant Russell T. Davis series, I think it's brilliant, called It's a Sin. Yeah. Which is his story, the history of the AIDS epidemic in London in the 1980s, told through a collection of young men experiencing the ravages yeah. of that. Have you watched it? I watched the whole thing, yeah. And I thought a lot about you, because that must have been the world in which you and Jimmy Somerville... Yeah, and I know Mark Ashton, who who was one of the characters portrayed in Pride, who was a dear friend of yours. Yeah, I you mean, must it, have all moved. Has it made you dwell on that period? It's interesting. I talked to someone who was a sort of psychologist who specialised in big trauma, who said that it can often be thirty years for there to be sufficient distance between what someone has suffered and 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 how they can reflect on that. So there's a 30-year gap between the sort of worst time of the AIDS crisis for me and now. And I think I do begin to sort of see it a bit. One of the things why I like Russell's uh, drama so much was I think it, it did kind of give it sufficient distance and thought, and also with Russell's unique genius. 
it's a very difficult thing to write about, but I think he, he, he I think he carries it off. Some people have described it as a bit cartoonish, and I sort of see what they mean in that there are broad brushstrokes in it. But get the AIDS crisis into five episodes of primetime drama. Inevitably, I, that's going to be the case. I got to know, I've got to know Russell through this podcast actually because he did an episode which you can find wherever you get your podcast. We communicate quite often. And I, I had to text him at one point and say, listen, love, I'm only on episode three because you created characters I adore and I know they're going to die and I don't want to see them die. Yeah. I've, I've taken to shouting at the screen, yeah. put a bloody condom on. Well, it was... Uh, I mean, And also, I knew every one of those people. I knew a Colin. I knew a Roscoe. I knew a Richie. I knew a Pink Palace. I knew all those people in all those places. That was my didn't life. Didn't you share a, share a squat with... Or a, or a, a pretty rundown flat with Jimmy, or was he in the other flat? No, Jimmy was. Uh, Jimmy came to live with me and uh, and the person who later became our manager in West Hampstead because he got attacked in his flat in Camberwell. So we were all living together under one roof for a while, and then of course we were working together. And Jimmy and I knew each other. We've known each other since we first arrived in London when we were teenagers. So we had history. I mean, Colin, the the, the Welsh guy, I knew someone whose story that was. Richie, I knew a couple of Richies, and in fact, one of them even looked like him. And I know and continue to know him, I would say, a, Ros- a Roscoe. I told you, part of it was really difficult because it took me back to a time which was unbelievably hard. And I've been speaking to friends of mine who went through it too. I w- for anybody who doesn't know what you're talking about, we're talking about young men dying in their droves, yeah. falling ill to a disease which was not understood, which was then stigmatised. Yeah. And their deaths could be very, very lonely. Think of the worst thing that could happen and then multiply it by an unimaginable factor. It was sort of like that. It was unbelievably tough to go through. And it damaged all of us who did go through it in one way or another. To survive, if you do survive those things, you need to sort of armour yourself in all sorts of ways or just, you know, you have to develop some sort of strategy to survival. It's very interesting watching it about why ecstasy became such a huge thing, why the rave scene really took off, end of the 80s, early 90s. Partly it was because of what was happening in gay clubs and that was that lots of us were so wretched that to take a pill which made you happy was really good. Quite a lot of people I know who um, survived HIV later fell victim to addictions of one kind or another because of self-medicating with, well, particularly ecstasy, I think, because if there's one thing people were short of, you know, was, was, was happiness, however created. Do you think that wretchedness was what led to that, I mean, I was going to say famous episode, you wrote about it in one of your books, where having taken a test and convinced yourself because you had an outbreak of shingles that you were HIV positive, you told Jimmy that you were positive? I declared myself to be HIV positive before I got the test results. So I'd had, I, I was ill. I came down with shingles and that was very often an indicator of um, HIV. And I had the test and I got into a complete state over it, told Jimmy about it that I was HIV positive. And then when the test result came back, it was negative. So then I suppose I'd slightly dress myself in the garbs of someone who was HIV positive. And I didn't put them right for, a, oh, at least a year, I think it was. It was so easy to think of a reason not to do it. Do you know what I mean? And so I didn't. I don't know. Perhaps I wanted the sort of weird status that came with it, if I'm really honest. It's very hard to admit. 
but it's true, I think. Everybody went a bit mad, Jay. It's funny, I've talked to other people about this who did the same thing. I wasn't the only, I wasn't the only one. I think it's not unreasonable to be given a pass for terrible things that we did. And I was interesting in watching, it's a sin in watching Richie, who did not take precautions and knowingly infected other people with HIV. I know lots of people who did that too. And you might think that that's an intolerable burden to place on a conscience, but actually... You know, I think it behoves us to be sort of sympathetic and understanding of what it did to people, not just through the ravages of the disease, but through the effects of the epidemic. Did it do irreparable damage to your relationship with Jimmy? No. He was very understanding about it. I mean, Jimmy and I had already severely damaged our our, our relationship through working together in the sort of extra- <laughs> the, well, the crucible of of pop music success, which is exacting and uh, onerous, and also you know great. Jimmy and I worked well because we were very different. He was a working class boy from Glasgow whose assumptions about life were completely different from my own. I was a middle class, middle English boy, public school educated, da da da. Different assumptions from him. And that's what made us, I think, work together, was that we were discovering those differences. But when things got difficult, demanding, those differences worked against us because we didn't understand each other. Most of the sort of regrets of any substance I have in life, I cannot claim like Frank Sinatra to have had only a few. Well, no, I haven't had many. But the substantial ones are about not having been loving and generous and understanding because I was too angry or too frightened or, you know, that sort of thing. I did wonder, because I'm not sure how long ago it was, a couple of years ago, the uh, charity that I'm a patron of, The Food Chain, which is an HIV charity, was about to celebrate 30 years. And I came up with a fabulous plan, which was to reunite the communards, like loads of people haven't attempted that. And you said yes. And Sarah Jane, who I know... Uh, her ex-husband is a big mate of mine. All that. So I, you, she said, yes, absolutely. And Jimmy said, absolutely not. Yeah. And I, I wondered whether it was something to do with that or whether Jimmy's just refusing to get back together with you all. Because you never split up. No, you, we, still, you, you we, just... still, we still haven't split up. Um, it's a bit like an aristocratic marriage where you're, you live separate lives, haven't seen each other for 30 years, but you never actually got divorced. I mean, I saw Jimmy, last time I saw Jimmy was a few years ago. We bumped into each other in the BBC and it was lovely to see him. I love Jimmy and respect him and admire him enormously. We saw the worst of each other and the best of each other. I can understand why a return to what we were doing in the middle years of the 80s might not be something he or anyone would think would be wise to return to. Jimmy, to describe him as a relationship, I think that's fair enough. Also an addict. Yeah. Um, now in recovery. Yeah. Are you, attracted, are you attracted to them? Have you thought about that? Yeah. I've always liked naughty boys, Jay, because ah. I'm, a good, I'm a good boy, you see. And like most good boys, I've always been attracted to people who live the life that I don't for a mixture of complicated reasons, I think. And David had a sort of brio and a shamelessness and a bravery about him that I marvelled at. And I think that's one of the reasons why I loved him so much. And Jimmy, too, had a extraordinary appetite for life that was undimmed by considerations of the sort that would have stifled my chance of living it before it even got going. But... It's interesting that both of them were alcoholics. And I think it's not an unusual accompaniment in someone whose life is like that, that they do self-medicate 
anaesthetise. Or sometimes I think with David, one of the reasons he drank, I think, was to allow him to behave badly, to give him a reason to behave badly, because he was a good boy, really. And in drink, he it released what were sometimes unbearably dark potentialities within him, but could also, there was a splendour and a magnificence about them sometimes, which was both awful and kind of awesome at the same time. On that point, would you like to get into dessert? Because oh, yes. A, mine's just over here. I'm just mine's going to go and grab it. Mine's just over here too. I've got it ready to go. Uh, I have to actually take my headphones off to do it. So okay, I'll be I'll, back with you in about say. one minute. That is what I want a tart to look like. It's a very handsome-looking tart, isn't it? It's a chocolate tart with a passion fruit sauce. It looks almost machine cut with machine precision, doesn't it? Well, it's a very fine kitchen they've got there over at the Stafford, he says. God. Where Bigging is them it? Because the Stafford is one of those little hotels, boutique hotels, that's been there for a very long time, hidden just off St James's Street. There's a little private alleyway that runs off Green Park itself and comes out opposite the Stafford. I know what you mean. Oh, my God, this is so good, Joe. There's an element to you of tourism in the sense of there you are in Findon, in the vicarage, and you take your ministry very, very seriously. But you bloody love swanning around London. And I mean, David used to take the piss out of you for this, didn't he? Totally. Yeah. Britain's, he used Britain's to call best me, loved vicar. Well, simple country parson, he used to say to me sometimes when I was being particularly insufferable. <laughs> Although David liked the high life too. One of the nicest things we did, Jay, was. I used to do talks on, on cruise ships. So in January, we get on a ship and they look after you exceptionally well. So that's very nice. No one's going to do it for the Michelin star dining. It's just you can't do that on a ship, but, you know, it's acceptable. But it's just sort of chugging through around the world in ships and going to lovely places. So David loved that and uh, he would throw himself into it and he did the fashion show on the last one we went on. And then he um, would do line dancing and tapestry and join all the classes and make friends with people in the smoking section. And then we went gambling, playing roulette and stuff. It was great. But David was happiest when I was home alone. So we would every year, we went up to this place, we always stay in Scotland. You have to walk across a beach and through some woods to get there. And it's the most beautiful place. But when we went there, we would do cooking, walking the dogs, reading. He would do his knitting and his crochet and his sewing. And I would maybe write a bit. And we'd go for a whole day without even speaking a single word, but just together, you know? Was that because he had you to himself? Yeah, I think it's because he had me to himself. And I could give him my undivided attention. To One of the things I'm a bit sad about, Jay, is that... I wish I hadn't been so busy and worked so hard, really, because he suffered from neglect, my neglect, which was a shame. And I was going to make it up to him, but didn't get the chance. Don't wait but, to do the thing you need to do. But then there's only one sort of person you can be, surely. Yeah, but like most things, it's a question of degree, isn't it, about making choices that best allow you what you need and allow the others around you what they need. And that's always, you know, inevitably a compromise. But I suppose I just wish he hadn't died, actually. And I just, you know, a bit well, more that's would be lovely. Not, not an unreasonable thing to <laughs> wish. Before I let you go, because our desserts are coming to an end, I have to talk to you about Rev, the Tom Holland series, about a, an inner-city London vicar. I believe he came and spent a couple of days with you. 
Yeah. As, you, were, you were the consultant on that series, is that right? Uh, well, yeah, one of them. He's a brilliant actor, Tom, and one of the ways in which he's brilliant is that he's amazingly observant. But the powerful stuff was the stuff I didn't realise I was showing him that turned up in the performance. What sort of things? One of the things was my habit of scrounging cigarettes off street homeless people. Um, and, then, and then chewing polos to cover up the smell of it before I went back to work. Would you bum fags off homeless people as a, as a way into talking to them? Well, it would be part of it. I mean, I'd usually bring them something. So we had a churchyard that filled up at night. We were in the most, it was Knightsbridge, you know, it was the, probably the richest or one of the richest neighbourhoods in London, Belgravia. But at night, our churchyard filled up with street homeless people. So I used to take food and blankets and, and just got to know people a little bit. And part of the getting to know people a little bit was, you see, I had given up smoking, ah. but I was rather struggling with it at the time. So I would just pounce a cigarette from, from homeless people, which when I think about it now is awful. I did buy them fags as well sometimes. Oh, that's, that's good. One of things I love about this job, Jay, is that you get alongside people of all kinds, the good, the bad, the ugly, the wonderful, the exciting, the dramatic, you know, and the sort of common experience of humanity. What's common? What's not common? What's it like to be really, really destitute? What's it like to be as grand as can be? You know, those things interest me. I'm nosy. The first time we met, actually, you told a story about going to a party at Franco Zeffirelli's house. Was it awful? I, I'm going to tell your story. You sit next to a chap and you have a long, detailed conversation. You say to Franco at the end of this conversation, well, he really knew a lot about the world. And he said, well, he should do, darling. He's the fucking Foreign Affairs Secretary. <laughs> That's right. I was the it's, Minister of the Interior. Yeah, I was the Minister of the Interior. He just knew yeah. a lot about the world. It's like you... Like getting into situations. Oh, I do. I like a situation, and also, I'm a diarist, Jay. And I think that often the diarists whose work I like most of all are the people who have, in that kind of Christopher Isherwood sense, that kind of unjudgmental, open eye. I, I do sometimes think that perhaps that's an interesting thing to do: is to kind of make your way through life and just record what you can and try to make sense of what you can and also lots of it's not there to be made sense of is it it's just there to be witnessed or experienced or enjoyed or endured all that stuff I, I kind of like doing that really you've definitely done it in the madness of grief a memoir of love and loss because it is an amazing piece of work thank um, you all that remains is for me to say thank you for staying in for lunch with me it has been pretty good hasn't it how's it's your champagne <laughs> it's very good indeed cheers and all on a school day too I really must thank Richard for his openness. He answered everything. I threw at him with grace and aplomb. What a gent. And his book is called The Madness of Grief, A Memoir of Love and Loss. It's a hell of a read. And we ate, thanks to beautifully prepared meal boxes from the Game Bird at the Stafford Hotel in London. Now, as ever, we really appreciate you rating and commenting on this podcast. Five stars really does it. Um, so if you haven't done so already, please do. Spreading the word helps us to keep making these. And do follow us to get new episodes wherever you get your podcasts as soon as they are published. Out to Lunch is a something else in Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The recording engineer was Gulliver Tickle and the mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. Jemima Rathbone was assistant producer. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, it's radio DJ and TV presenter Edith Bowman. So I kind of like bundled my way forward. This security guard 
kind of shunted me out the way, at which point Rod Stewart pushed him out the way and said, for God's sake, man, it's only a kid, and pulled me in and signed my programme. Did, did you recall this with him yes. when you interviewed him? Yeah. And how nuts did your mum go when you said, by the way, uh, this week I'm interviewing Rod Stewart? I took her with me. <laughs> you took your mum with you to, to the interview. 